Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're taking on Pierce Brosnan's butt in the 1999 remake of The Thomas Crown Affair. I want you to talk about women. Oh, I enjoy women. A woman could trust me, as long as her interest didn't run too contrary to my own. This painting is worth a hundred million bucks. They shut off the air to drive out the tourists. Then they close the gates to keep everybody out. Diversion. Make a lot of noise over there. So over here in this room, you can take a hundred million off the wall and waltz right out the front door. Oh, that's good. Oh, yes. We're still kicking it on this 19, uh, this movies and their remakes series. Andy, are you aware of that? I am, in fact. Are you aware of that going into this movie, or did that come as some sort of a surprise to you? Can I just say that something totally unrelated to our show right now that I feel like I have to get off my chest, <laughs> and I don't have another platform to do it? Please do. Uh, I listened to your fantastic episode of Friends in Your Ears, uh, the oh, Friends yes. in Your Ears podcast, and you did a terrific job until you absolutely punted on the very last question, what is the best shape? of pasta noodle. And I found that is the first time in a long time that I have found myself yelling at my podcast player because I was so frustrated by all three of you for not making a stronger case for the best pasta noodles. <laughs> Which, according to you, is? Andy, there are several. But you have to consider the actual shape of the pasta as the the mechanism to deliver the sauce, the topping, whatever <laughs> that is. And that pasta noodles are different in the way they collect and deliver the sauce. And you have to think of those mechanics. And none of you addressed mechanics, Andy. And I was very frustrated by that. So people, please go listen to the Friends in Your Ears podcast uh, with Andy Nelson and uh, then... Uh, write that show and tell them about the state of your dismay, because there is more to be said about this question. I was very disappointed. Now, I have to Crown say, Affair. I have to yeah. say I was disappointed in myself after the show ended because I, <laughs> I, I recalled <laughs> that the whole reason that I fell in love with gnocchi and I wanted to learn how to make it and uh -huh. all of that was because on our show, we talked about The Godfather Part 3, and they yeah. make gnocchi. <laughs> they and that gnocchi. got me started on the whole thing. And I can't believe I didn't even tie that back into our show. Uh, Andy, that, yet That's a another show fail. reason. That is a show fail. <laughs> All right. Thomas Crown Affair. Thomas uh, so Crown Affair. Movies and their remakes. Why did we start doing this? That's a good question. <laughs> we... It's, That's it's a real really, stumper. It, it is. It's no. It's really interesting to look at these movies uh, from 1968 and see what um, other filmmakers later in in later decades decided to do to kind of update them and create new versions of them. And so that's, I think, largely why we thought as a part of our 50th anniversary celebration of uh, films from 1968, we would throw in this movies in the remake series because it's interesting to see. What does a 50-year-old movie look like? And then what do people think um, needs to be retold with that particular story? Yeah. And, and I think this movie is an interesting case uh, in that, you know, there were some of the things that we talked about last uh, last week about sort of any sort of statement about wealth and uh, inequality in the in the earlier film. Uh, is is that worth talking about? What about sexuality? 
you know, and and I think there is a a uh, you know a conversation to be had about uh, just sort of the the strong female characters uh, in in the films. Uh, how do those hold up over these long years between the two? Uh, it, but you know what I think most people are tuning in for when they tune in for the uh, Thomas Crown Affair is you know the heist and the love story that comes along with it. Some might call it an affair. <laughs> some, some might show off. For me, uh, it was all about the heist, and they changed uh, some significant mechanics uh, in the heist for two major sequences. How did it hold up for you this time? Talking specifically to the heist, I think it works the way they do it here, but they do make some big shifts. Um, the The main, a couple of the main ones is in the first one, Thomas Crown hires all the thieves to do this robbery and then splits the money with them. He doesn't ever participate in it, though. He kind of pays them to do it. They do it. He gets the money. They split the money. In this one, um, he hires these people to do it. So that's the same. They do it. That's the same. But then he actually has it set up where they are basically the fall guys for the robbery so that he can use them as a distraction to commit the real robbery. And that's an interesting twist on the actual robbery. I actually think it works pretty well. I think it's a pretty clever way to do that. Um, and uh, there are elements that they use within it that I think are terrible and really cliche. But on the <laughs> no. whole, I actually think it's it's pretty fun. And I do enjoy um, Brosnan in the role doing all of that. I think it works nicely. Um, and then same thing for the final robbery. In fact, I'd say I enjoy the final robbery in this film a lot more than in the original because the original is treated uh, almost like an afterthought. It's so quick and it's dealt with the um, the uh, multiple shots as we've kind of grown accustomed to in that film that it's over in like 10 seconds. <laughs> it feels <laughs> right, really right. brief. It's very fast. Yeah. And in it's this one, it actually, there there's a similarity to the opening one. But there's some fun twists on it. And to that end, I think it was more successful in the second film. I actually think so, too. A couple of points there. First, I think switching from loot to or from to painting, right, from, oh, right, yeah. uh, from cash to the paintings uh, is a really nice touch for the character. I think it fits the character much, much better. Right. I mean, it was this this guy who's just aloof and rudderless and uh, but but that he has this this thing that he is absolutely uh, fascinated by, that he's absolutely captivated by, uh, really fits for me his class, his status, uh, and and his drive to acquire it, to get it, to, he must have it to satisfy that need. But then not really, right? It's, it ends up being kind of the thrill of the caper, uh, but, but it's such a 1% caper. And I, I think that really fits. <laughs> it fits who he is uh, for me. I really like that. I think Pierce Brosnan really carries it, right? I, I think he actually does a terrific job. And, uh, you know, in this sort of era where he's, he's trying to, but I would say using this film as evidence, not terribly successfully distance himself from James Bond. Um, you know, he's he's pretty much James Bond 
uh, in this movie, but an industrialist. And so take that for what you will. It's maybe it's a character of habit uh, right about now. But I thought it was great because I liked this James Bond. You know, I, I really liked this guy. Um, I, I wonder, I'm so curious, your the things that that bug you about the heist, because I think I may be more forgiving uh, about the things that you call cliche uh, and dare I say hackneyed. Uh, what's uh, what's got you bent out of shape? There are a number of things, um, and and starting right toward the beginning, it's there's there's a weird issue that I I have a hard time faulting anyone other than than poor onset planning. There's a shot when Pierce Brosnan uh, gives up on on waiting for his driver uh, because they're stuck in traffic, and so he says he'll walk. He gets out of his car. And instantly is almost run down by a moving truck, which <laughs> which clearly seems to not realize that traffic's at a dead stop because he has to slam on his brakes to avoid hitting Pierce Brosnan. And the right. guy yells at him, Pierce Brosnan. And, and in that very shot, when it shows him looking at Pierce Brosnan and, and Brosnan kind of waves him forward, you can see all of the cars in front of the guy are like six feet in front. There's no room for him to be going anywhere. It's yeah, nonsense. That truck that he should have not have been, been moving. Yeah, he yeah. would have been. He he's lucky. Pierce Brosnan was there because he would have rear-ended the exactly. car in front of him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. And then Brosnan moves out of the way, and the guy takes off. It's like all of a sudden Where traffic is he just going? like open. The traffic's gone. It's yeah. it's yeah nonsense. That was just one of those things that I watched. I'm like, wait a minute, what just happened? To the traffic. New York here? traffic is a mystery, mm -hmm. man. New York it's traffic is a mystery. Clearly. <laughs> So that started it for me. Then we have the old cliche of the of the Trojan horse. Okay. Which Man, I, I get that out of this on this one too. <laughs> it's nonsense. And it's it's really frustrating. There's there's a there's a cliche of using something like a Trojan horse. And it has become cliche to actually say, oh, the old Trojan horse gag. Because now it's it's that's so cliche now too. It is so frustrating that it just falls to that. Then you have these Middle Eastern um, criminals who just seem so cliche themselves. And uh, just the way that they're working and, and just all like the rolling across the floor and the whole robbery on their end is pretty nonsensical. And I, I had a really hard time watching it because Brosnan, uh, his element of the robbery is so cool and calm and and just done so smoothly that he's he, i mean he's using these like you know these these criminal boobs to do the rest of it and it's just it's so frustrating to watch them you know opposite each other and maybe uh, mctiernan was trying to uh create that juxtaposition with these two robberies but it's like he was the one hiring these guys they should have been a little more a little uh, you know doing something a little stronger so I, I, that frustrated me i'm with you on the trojan horse thing absolutely with you on the trojan horse thing how did they not see this coming it is literally the <laughs> eponymous long con exactly. it is ridiculous that they're standing here laughing about it and they don't see this just knock on the horse somebody knock on the horse <laughs> right. I, it has been the long con since odysseus 
you had to know that this was going to be bad, you stupid museum security people. I have a real problem with that. Um, I, I have less of a problem with the, the you know, generic European thugs, but mostly because it's John McTiernan. And that seems like so of a piece with something I would expect from John McTiernan's action uh, movies. And these guys were nowhere near as cool as the bad guys in Die Hard. I know you're right. You're right. I, I know that you were right about that, but uh, they they still just felt kind of, you know, they felt like they came out of his tool set. Uh, I don't understand why poor Yanni uh, was made to not speak English. I thought that was kind of mean. <laughs> <laughs> they make it fun of Yanni. I felt like they were kind of bullies. <laughs> well, and that was something else. They say, oh, only English from here. And they yeah. start speaking English. And then partway through, they start terrible. speaking They start, start speaking the Romanian again. I'm like, I thought right. it was only English now. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I, you know, it just it is just just highlights the boobery of these guys that, you know, they're going to get caught because they're terrible. Really, they're terrible. They have all this fancy equipment, but they're genuinely terrible and they need to be terrible. And I I sort of bought that because we get things like Pierce Brosnan doing the patented Pierce Brosnan roll under the gate. Right. Where he rolls so <laughs> fast, his tails spin up real high. And that's like a, a James Bond Pierce Brosnan role. And now it's a Thomas Crown look at it it's like tom cruise running pierce brosnan rolling under things it, it should be a thing uh because i feel like i've seen it a lot and i need to do a master cut of this because of this a super cut of this because i feel like it's real and i'm not imagining it. it's I, great i can't wait to see it yes uh so anyhow uh oh, I, I forgot I, feel... I forgot one thing oh yeah what the painting he puts it in a briefcase oh, that's what that's where i was going <laughs> That is so frustrating. <laughs> it is the thing like where you get caught on the truck and that kind of impacts how you watch this sequence. This drives me batty. This is a, a this is a, a, a masterwork painting. It is I have to imagine it's just old oil on canvas uh, with a wooden frame and you see the wooden frame right around right. the canvas you see it as he takes it off the wall in that great pierce brosnan like i <laughs> i'm my spine is made of steel kind of a pivot <laughs> that he does you know it's it's a great move and then he puts it he opens his briefcase and it turns out his briefcase <laughs> it's not a briefcase at all inside is like this milled aluminum frame right it's very lightweight but it's not flexible and he jams the thing the painting inside the briefcase and then folds the briefcase like it's nothing what happened to the little one by two frame did he doesn't it crack and wouldn't you agree that perhaps cracking a masterwork oil painting would devalue it in some way shape or form that is such poor uh depiction and production design and Everything just sort of fails for me right there. And I it makes me crazy. It is when you tell me about this movie, when you say, hey, we're going to watch this movie. This is the first thing I think about. And I think that's a real shame. This should not be the thing that sticks with me most. What's funny is listening to McTiernan talk about it. It was actually a longer sequence and they went into more detail about them folding it and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> And it so offended the test audiences. They were just beside themselves that he did this to the painting, that they had to re-edit re it in a way where they could kind of make it 
look as as uh, try to fake it out where the audience might not realize that it's getting folded in half. Oh and they God. do edit it in a way where you think that it's going to work, but I can still tell. And it bugs me to death, just like you, and especially when he pulls it out later and it's completely not folded. I'm like, yep. it, it's not a shrinking briefcase. It Maybe it is. <laughs> Maybe we should just need to retcon the entire narrative that yes. Thomas Crown has the shrinking briefcase. <laughs> there you go. Uh, what, they, what they should have done is just found a painting that was a much smaller size so it could have fit into the briefcase. Then it would have so made, easy made now. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, here's another thing about the robbery that bugs me. <laughs> the more we're on it, the more it drives me nuts. This is something that really irritated me. So after the robbery is over, you have uh, Rene Russo and Dennis Leary watching the security footage, and they see the they see the the room and the the three legged bench. They see the later when the heat has risen to a point where. All of the heat signatures of the people, just everything registers as pure white. So not, you can't see anything. And and she makes the connection later of, oh, this bench actually only has two legs. This mysterious third leg, where did it come from? Why don't you rewind the tape and find out, folks? <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, yeah, I, yeah, that that's not a good that's not a good one. Uh, especially in a movie where they're really showcasing fancy dancy technology, right? Like, yeah, they're they're really making a case that this guy, uh, that all these people are, they're able to do th to to kind of truck with one another, right? That that they have the resources to track one another. That it, you have to have that with this movie to to be able to believe that Thomas Crown and. Um, uh, Catherine Banning are are on the level playing field. They have to have sort of equivalent resources, and for those little foibles to get in the way, I, I think don't it, it it it's tough for the movie to to start like that. Well, not only that, this is a movie where you have the insurance investigator tell the criminal early on, "I know you did it, and I'm on to you, and I'm going to get you." Mm -hmm. Why can't she just say, "Hey, I saw you in the footage. Leave your briefcase there." And he's like, oh, it was an accident. Uh, thank you. Can I get it back? You know, or something, you know, I, why couldn't we have that exchange? It's it would have fit in the script. They could have found a way to write cute with that. Yeah. Um, instead, by leaving it out, it ends up feeling really sloppy. Exactly. Especially because they've already set up the narrative that he's always there. It was talking to Bobby, the security guard. Yeah. They're buddies. He's always right. there. Of course, he would have he, he could possibly have left his his uh, and briefcase a, there. And according to what he tells his secretary, you know, he, he leaves his briefcase all over the place. Right. He's he's nuts. He doesn't care about briefcases. <laughs> yeah. He's got right. a briefcase in every port. The, another thing. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't wearing gloves when he puts the briefcase down in the doorway, the titanium one that stops the thing. Couldn't they also fingerprint that to get his prints off of it? Andy, where were you with the NYPD? Because that's a good point. <laughs> should, have, should have done that. In a world uh, in which we've added thermal cameras, uh, you would think they would have, have carried on a, a sort of mastery of fingerprinting technology. You would think. You would think. Mm -hmm. I do have to tell you something cool about the thermal cameras. Do tell me. So John McTiernan learned about these thermal cameras when he was making Predator because they actually shot some of that film with thermal cameras with to get the heat signatures of the actors when they were walking. But what he learned 
during the making of that film, when the temperature rose over 90 degrees, um, the human bodies registered the same uh, temperature as their surroundings. And so you couldn't tell what was what anymore. It all kind of blurred together. So they used that technology as a tool in the robbery here. That's so fancy. I think that's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool, too. Yeah. So one of the things that we said last week, uh, Andy, is that this movie is is as much I, I can't remember exactly how we put it. I, I should probably listen to that show. Uh, but it, it, the, this movie is not fundamentally or the Thomas Crown Affair 1968 is not fundamentally a heist movie. Right. It's it is more the the cat and mouse relationship movie. Is that an accurate accurate to your memory? Yeah, I think uh, I mean the robbery takes place uh, over. I mean the robbery and and I think as you determined last week, Thomas Crown doesn't get home and kind of move it's on to the next minutes. step in the story. Yeah, it's like the first third of the film or so. So right. it's a, it's a pretty hefty chunk. But, right, right, uh, absolutely. Yeah. But in terms I mean, of the, the whole spirit, setup, yeah. yeah. In terms of the spirit of the movie, we got to get through the heist so that we can get to what really matters, which is the cat and mouse of these characters uh, right. playing off of one another. And so uh, as you compare Faye Dunaway and Steve McQueen, uh, here we have Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo uh, as the insurance investigator. How does that hold up for you? Generally, I like them. I think I, I like Pierce Brosnan. I think he carries the role well. As you pointed out, there's kind of a James Bond coolness with him. And even though he's a robber, there is something different about him stealing the painting. I kind of like the way that it plays out. I, I really um, think that Rene Russo has a, there's just a real sense of fun that she's bringing to the role here. And I think Faye also did um, in the original. So on the whole, I would say I think that they cast it really well for the two leads. I do too. I think they I think the the characters and the the performances themselves are are quite strong. I I enjoy watching them. They're charismatic. One of the things that McTiernan said was, you know, I I really wanted to cast someone that you know, the audience could fall in love with. And he said you look at Renée Russo and I'll say now Renée Russo of the period uh because I feel like she was in kind of a lot of stuff right right around this thing and I just I don't have a recent memory of her work. But uh thor oh yeah yeah you're right thor that's not even that recent anymore um anyhow the dark world (laughs) (laughs) anyway uh, i i feel like uh i i feel like she was great they made some weird choices around how they used her and pierce and their sexuality uh and uh, instead of what we had in the original movie, which was, you know, the chess and the, the long kiss. Um, and, and I'm curious your take on that, uh, because I they, they spend a lot of time in full romantic couple mode, hanging out naked, lots of sex on in very uncomfortable places. I find it very difficult to believe that their passion was so strong that a marble staircase is where they would land. Uh, together, I just I, I I don't have the joints for it, but um, but they they did. It's very strange. It just made made me hurt uh, watching it. Um, in it and doing all of this stuff at the expense of uh, the more sort of subtle. Uh, I say subtle it, by comparison, uh, sexy sexy board game. 
of the last movie. <laughs> uh, the last movie was so erotic, oh, yeah. and this movie was uh, was inelegant. It didn't live up to the characters that they were creating. That that were just more of the the elegant character setup, and then we get into just uh, you know, it's just I you know, I I agree with some of that. I I think there is a sexuality in this film that that works really nicely for a little while. Um, I don't mind the staircase, like that montage of them when they first get together, um, you know, on the dance floor in that crazy dress that she's wearing, um, which works really well on her. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, I mean, she just looks great. It's an, and, she looks great. It's an impossible dress. I, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> It's. It reminded me of the dress that Marilyn Monroe wears in uh, Some Like It Hot. It's one of those okay. dresses that you yeah. don't want to shine lights on because... Right. That's <laughs> true. Very revealing. Um, I found it actually really nice the way that they that McTiernan played with kind of the sexuality and the tension um, during the initial, uh, the initial encounter. And I thought it worked for me um, well. I, I found it to be kind of sexy and it kind of created the mood and it allowed um, them to kind of just, you know, I don't know, just kind of connect. And I found it worked really well for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like after that, then it just kind of um, begins to kind of turn to just nudity all the time. Um, and I mean, I, it's fine. I, I think it, it still works, but you're right. It takes away some of the uh, sexuality and the kind of that sensual sensual uh, tension that we had in the previous film. To its credit, McTiernan said that one of the things that he had noted from watching the the first film is that once they had sex, um, that all of the sort of fire left their relationship. And so, what the the implication here is that he wanted to do something different. He said, "This is not what happens in in our film." Uh, and, and I think that is true, right? And and so there are a couple of things that that, I, that strike me. One, uh, it is still very hot, right? It's very sexy, um, and and the sex scene is great. Then it moves into a whole different phase of the relationship where it's it's much more of a couple, right? It's a couple that is completely comfortable, um, you know, in uh, all stages of undress with each other. It's just absolutely casual, and uh, it, it feels very natural between the two of them and that's not what i'm in it for <laughs> you know what i mean like i i it is no longer um exciting or titillating to just have the constant relationship nudity um because you know i know what that's like i, I like the sparky stuff you know, uh, I, I like the chess game and, and I, and I say that both literally and metaphorically and this movie, I miss the, the chess game. The dance scene is very sexy. And I also think it is a blunt instrument compared to the scalpel of the chess game. It is just not as exciting. Uh, and it's not as clever, uh, you know, the way they use the chess game as the visual metaphor for what they're leading into. We know dance sequences lead to sex. Like we've seen that a lot. Uh, and, and so I just feel like uh, it, it, it went for weirdly kind of a lowbrow exposition here. Yeah. And that is, I, I would agree with you on that count. It's a little disappointing with this film because it feels like 
I know that McTiernan felt like Faye Dunaway's character kind of uh, gave in to him, just kind of, you know, basically swooned after they had sex and and her character just didn't have the same strength anymore. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I still feel it's stronger because it allowed that tension to remain. And by removing the tension, uh, in the relationship, it, I mean, you know, we still have a strong female character Mm -hmm. in both cases, I think. And, uh, I just feel like in the, in this particular case, it does, uh, oddly take some of the steam out of the film. It it is, it is odd. I I think that is the, it, it's, I get an odd feeling from it. So there are a few um, elements that they treat similarly um, from the original to this one. You know, Mm -hmm. we've got the original sale of a crown property. We've got the golf game where the rich people are just being obnoxious rich people. We've got her spying on him, doing an elite activity. Uh, In this case, it's the catamaran when he wrecks it for fun. And, of course, then uh, doing an elite activity with him, flying in the glider, which was a nice uh, callback to the previous one. Um, but what did you think of the, some of the differences? Like, uh, does it matter to you that they moved to New York instead of Boston? I, it, for me, it's nothing. I don't yeah, care. Trivial. No, I did. I gave it no thought. What about, uh, this is a big one for me. Uh, I think a lot of the other ones we've already talked about so far, like p- the painting versus the money, the way the robbery was done. Right. Um, but the big one for me is the ending. I really had a problem with this ending. And I will say, largely, it's because of the really obnoxious and poorly written flight attendant. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the, the OG worst. flight attendant. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but the seatbelt sign is still on. Oh, and it's like what they're they're kissing, so she just smiles and stops. And she just those, threw herself, arms those... and legs akimbo, <laughs> through over the seat, and started punching on another traveler. And sh- that flight attendant did not move. Uh, in a way that uh, corresponds to my understanding of flight attendants. Now, I know we've had 20 years since where <laughs> flight regulations have changed. Maybe my memory is such that this used to be allowed. It was just terrible. But but really, it's it's largely that sense of kind of that tragic end in the original when you you realize that these two characters are both going to forgo finding that that perfect mate and in, in love with each other. Uh, and do what they do. It, you know, they are the fox. They're going to eat the whatever it is. What's the fox carrying on his back across the water? What's that story? <laughs> a pigeon? I don't know. What isn't the frog. there a, a isn't frog? There like like a a frog and a no, it's not a frog. Know, it's a frog, frog and a fox swim. and a crocodile or something. Okay. <laughs> so yes, anyway, this is a great <laughs> metaphor. But anyway, they are both doing what comes naturally to them, and they are yes. going to do that scorpion. instead of it's a love. scorpion. It's a scorpion. Yeah, because the frog. scorpion stings him. Yeah. And then and the, stings the frog and the frog drowns. Yeah. Or is it a right. fox? No. I don't know. Anyway. So you have whatever. a fox and a chicken and a donkey and, and some hay and you have to get them across a river, but you can't put them in the what? In the boat at the same time. Is that exactly. the same thing? And a scorpion. The, I'm sure All that's right. the same. So okay. anyway. The, uh, and, and so it's nice in the original ending. These two people. um do what they do and they end up apart and they both know the other person is going to um well yeah she kind of thinks i think in the in that one that she's actually going to catch him and uh but he's smart enough to know that she's going to betray him in this one with the happy ending where she gets together with him 
it just i don't know it it takes a lot of the steam out of the the crux of the story because all of a sudden it does turn it into a love story and it takes away that idea of this fire that these people have or the alternate version is it turns her into kind of this robber on the run which is what he's talking to her about you know i'll yeah. teach you how to you know maneuver in the you know in the dark corners of the world whatever it's like what yeah it's weird uh, i, I just didn't like what it did here's where i hang hang this I, I hang the responsibility of that on pierce brosnan from the start when you compare pierce brosnan's character to steve mcqueen's portrayal of the same character what we get in mcqueen's thomas crown is a uh, a greater depth to his angst to his sadness right you his rudderlessness is apparent he wears it right on his sleeve even in the romance you feel a sense of sadness and i don't think i understood that as clearly until i watched pierce brosnan uh, and just look at the way his glee comes out of his face with the painting and the joy that he gets out of the paintings and and the way he carries himself as a character as the sophisticate uh he is he is not as just straight up uh, sad. He is not as sad about his station. And that, I think, is much clearer in the, the original film that his his motivation for doing these crazy things is because of his angst. It's because he's ending his his life, essentially. Right. He's ending this part of his life and and trying to to figure out how to be something completely different. And in this movie, you don't get a sense that that's what's happening here. You, you don't get it. He, he's just a, a guy who likes to steal stuff, uh, but it is purposeless uh, and joyful. and. I think from the moment the first frame lights on this movie, there is there was never an assumption that it would end with the same sense of romantic grief that the first movie did. I think it's because of the way Pierce Brosnan approached this character. Good, bad, or indifferent, it's, it is just a different portrayal, and I think that locked a happy ending. Yeah, and also I, I would think that there's something about it being in the 90s. It just feels like, um, this was the way that they would have to end it. I don't think they'd be able to pull this off like they did in the sixties when times were a little more tumultuous, um, and they could get away with something a little riskier like that. I think this time, um, it just, it needed to end the way it did. Well, I think that is also a good candidate for Saturday matinee, uh, lists. I would like to look for, uh, mostly I would like you to look for, uh, nineties, uh, <laughs> 90s love stories that end poor, end uh, in disappointment for the participants. <laughs> uh, because I think uh. there's some out there and I wonder how they would compare to what like what is different about those relationships in those movies. Uh, that I think is is worth That's talking interesting, about. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. One big story point that we haven't talked about at all is the inclusion of Faye Dunaway in this one as uh, Thomas Crown's therapist. Um you know what would have made I this, love made seeing her, Faye Dunaway in here. Uh, yeah. But. But at no point did she say, you know, it's so strange. I once knew a guy a lot like you. That would have been great. <laughs> she was awesome. actually, because they changed her name. Why did they change the character's name of the insurance investigator if the original name wasn't taken? Know what I yeah. mean? Right, right. Yeah, it was it was a nonsense name change. Uh, I, and I was like perplexed, like why they go from Vicky to to Catherine? Catherine. There's there's no 
rhyme or reason to it. And, because Vicky uh, quit the insurance game and now she's a therapist in New York. Now she's a therapist giving really bad advice, really bad expositional advice. <laughs> she's mean. She is. Like she's what therapist so laughs at her <laughs> oh, Peter Pan grew up and couldn't find a place to land. <laughs> <laughs> so mean. Oh, uh, but I do is... like I do like seeing her. I, I think she's great. But I mean, in terms of a stunt cast, was it uh, was it appropriate for you? I think it's terrible. I mean, <laughs> McTiernan said he wanted to make sure that he started the film with her um, in this context, just to you know, cement for people. Yes, it's a remake and we're aware of it. But why? Like, yeah. it does nothing for the film. It's It creates this arbitrary, unnecessary, emotional exposition for the character that I read perfectly fine in the original Thomas Crown. I could see mm -hmm. all of the stuff that we hear Pierce Brosnan and Faye Dunaway moaning about in their sessions that, that I mean, it was clear that it was all in the characters and I didn't need it all spelled out for me. So totally. it just, it just created just um, a lot of uh, break um, breaks throughout the film that just feel just stuffed in and unnecessary. Well, it is case in point to why the therapy mechanic in movies, if the therapist isn't a major character in the film, therapy mechanic doesn't work. Like it just it's it just comes off as stupid and vapid uh, and, you know, expositional. Yeah, it really does. No matter Very how much I like seeing her on screen, no matter yeah. how much I like seeing her, you know, say it's an opportunity to do that harsh lighting, side lighting of Pierce Brosnan. It's not worth it. Well, here's a question. Would it have been fine if, say, she was like a uh, maybe the person at the table in the opening scene when he's, uh, you know, cutting that deal, writing that check? Would it have been fine having her in as a cameo, a much smaller part, but a cameo as the person buying the Thomas Crown property? Well, I think having him say to Faye Dunaway, you just overpaid. Uh, is is a much more interesting uh, context. Yeah, I would I would have preferred that. This just doesn't work for me. It's very frustrating. So Pierce Brosnan was one of the producers on this one, which I found pretty interesting. I don't know if he was one of the people that was really behind it, kind of pushing it to get made, but it does it does sound like he and his producer team actually were the ones who were kind of pushing forward, trying to find the director and everything. And their first choice was uh, John McTiernan. Unfortunately, he wasn't available. So they went to a few other directors and finally circled back to McTiernan when he was available. And he came on board and he did some um, suggestions to the script, including the whole Trojan horse bit that we love so much. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was Brosnan. I mean, to your point, I, just as a confirmation to hear Bo St. Clair, uh, his uh, producing partner, talk about it, that it was something that he was uh, he was very interested in from early, early on. And, and when it came back around again, uh, she was quite specifically, um, you know, in conversations with him about how to move on from Bond and that this this property and this character would be a an interesting sort of soft landing for him. And, you know, she said. Literally, we felt like the Bond audience would follow us. We felt like they would come with us if we pushed forward for this movie. And I think that's a, a you know, thinking about the movie strategically for Brosnan's production career and acting career, uh, it, it is an interesting uh, move. Yeah, I mean, he and St. Clair produced, I think, 10 films uh, together. Um, and I think this was the second one. Um, so it was early on in their producing 
but it, you know, it was, uh, I, I think it was, it was nice that they, uh, were able to kind of create this team and, and do some interesting films. I mean, I think a lot of them were focused on stories dealing with, um, Irish stuff. Oh, Irish stuff. Well, I was thinking like the film Evelyn that, uh, Brosnan was in, which is about, uh, uh, what is it? The, I'm trying to remember what that is. It's a true story based on somebody, uh, fighting the courts to get, uh, his kids back, I believe. Yeah. And he's the father. So. All right. Um, I haven't seen it. Yeah. I remember seeing the trailers and I remember hearing a lot of, uh, buzz about Brosnan's portrayal in the film, but I never ended up seeing it either. Uh, the, the writing team, uh, Leslie Dixon and Kurt Vimmer, um, interesting catalog of credits particularly uh leslie dixon this was right in the middle this is sort of right in the middle of her career i should say so far uh, her most recent writing credit is uh, overboard um uh, though she also wrote the screenplay for limitless which i uh quite i liked. think that i think overboard was um uh i don't know if she wrote that it was based on her script that she wrote for the original. Oh, the original overboard. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. You're right. You're right. Um, so any limitless was her most recent writing credit. Yeah, I think it was, and and I I quite like it, and I think she's uh, she is a producer on the TV show, which I have never watched, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, right. but I I really enjoyed uh, Limitless, Heartbreak Kid, Hairspray, Just Like Heaven, Freaky Friday. Uh, so that's taking us back now almost uh, twenty years. Uh, Pay it forward. Uh, was was he did it. Uh, interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I, that was that was right after this movie, uh, Thomas Crown Affair. And Kurt Wimmer, uh, or is it Wimmer? I think. Well, he's, I always go. I think Vimmer. he's American. I think he's American. But, but, I don't you know, know if he does the. He 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 wants the he wants the he pay. wants it he wants it okay. he does he wants it we talk I, he is a he's one of those guys who's um kind of a mostly a writer but he's directed a little bit and produced here and there. Um, he kind of got his start a little right before this with. Um, the, the adaptation of sphere, which, you know, has some issues. Um, and then right mm. after this, he did that really interesting science fiction film that I remember enjoying, although I, I hear more and more people saying how awful it was. So now I'm questioning my, my opinion, but it was the film, uh, equilibrium that, uh, that he wrote and directed that, uh, Christian Bale and Emily Watson and Tay Diggs were in equilibrium. Uh, wait a minute. Now, wait just a minute, Andy. Hmm. I think I liked that movie. I I liked it too, but everybody's now like, "Oh, it's so terrible." So who is it? I wasn't it, uh, it? was so Emily Watson. Wasn't Sean Bean in that too? Uh, Look boy, at this. was he in that one? Yes, uh, yes, he Sean was. Bean and Dominic yeah. Purcell. You know, I'm a fan of the Purcell. That's right, Andy. Uh, yeah, I think this was a good movie. Yeah, I don't remember but anything also, else about it. Yeah, all right. I don't either, unfortunately. <laughs> He also did um, the he was the writer for the most recent Point Break remake, and we, mm -hmm. um, you know, we talked about the uh, original on the show uh, last year. Oh, and Total Recall. So he's an interesting. It's an interesting writing pair, and I that's one of my biggest struggles with the film is I feel like a lot of the lines are just lazy writing. I don't feel like it worked as well as it could have. And for me, it ended up being more frustrating than I remembered. Um, and I feel like the script is just dated a little bit because it just it's not like I don't feel like it feels like it's um, a 90s script, but it just feels like um, uh, the, the writing style of an older script. And it just doesn't hold up as well for me now. 
Well, this is the interesting question then. Does it feel more dated as a 1999 uh, interpretation of the story than your experience watching the 68 version? Which feels more dated? It's an interesting question. I mean, certainly the uh, the style of the 60s really uh, the 60s version feels very of its period with the 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 way the music, you know, Michelle Legrand's themes play. Um, the multi-camera, Overall, yeah, yeah, it feels like very sixties, but it feels um fresh. Whereas uh, to me, it does. Um, the pacing, I, I'd say, if anything, the pacing might feel a little, a little slower. The newer one, uh, moves along at a healthy clip. It works pretty nicely. I think Bill Conti's music, um, is a crime. I think it's it's pretty terrible. He's trying to do some jazzy thing here, maybe. Uh, as a reference point to the original, but I just feel like the only music that works is Sinner Man. Anytime the the clapping comes on, which is just a fantastic element to throw into the robberies, I love those elements. And Nina Simone, when she finally kicks in, it is brilliant. It works perfectly. And it's just a shame that Bill Conti had to do any music for this film because it ruins it and it makes it feel dated. And the script, I think the writing does feel dated. So I don't know. I'd say the original feels uh, fresher to me. Uh, I uh, totally disagree with you on Conti's music. I find it fantastic. <laughs> I do agree uh, about Sinner Man, and I have to throw in Sting's uh, interpretation of Windmills uh, in Your Mind. Uh, oh, yeah, which great. I think it's just terrific. But I I actually adore this, and, and it reminds me so much of Jerry Goldsmith's Russia House score, which is very similar. So if which you is say a great you score, love right? that, I, I, I you think are it's a, a lunatic. They're I think it's the a same sin that you're damn score. The two. <laughs> you are not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh and my so I, I actually uh-huh. I, I quite like it it's a great uh, relaxing uh, dinner music that <laughs> uh, goes very well uh, so anyhow um, I, ov- overall I, I think it's funny watching these back to back because I, I think before watching these I would have said well obviously the 68 version feels more dated but in terms of interpretation of the story and the the um, interest I have in the motivations of our central character uh, I, uh, I actually, uh, think the 68, uh, version is fresher, uh, and, and actually has more to offer, more to say. There it is. Dennis Leary. We got to talk about Leary. Yeah. Dennis Leary, um, instead of, uh, uh Burke in yeah. the, uh, in the previous one, uh, you know, I, I thought he was fine. Um, I thought Burke was fine. I, I wasn't wowed by either of them. I think they both work. Burke really felt like a cop. Like he really just felt like he was born to play cops. Um, Leary, I don't know if I've seen him, uh, do a cop before this. Obviously he has afterward, um, thinking of, of, uh, the, the Spider-Man where he was, uh, uh, Gwen Stacy's father. Mm Mm-hmm. But otherwise, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I thought he was fine. Yeah, I, I really liked him. I, I, you know, I think as he's a utility player in this particular movie, but I, I think he was great. And I think this this kind of character, um, you know, is, is a character that gave him some uh, opportunity to do some more risky stuff uh, later, which I think was really great. You know, Rescue Me, for example, is, is one of those sort of um, the darker side of public service stories. Um, that he kind of walked through, which is, uh, which I thought was great. So I, I really like him uh, in just about anything uh, that he does. I think he's a, one of those sort of funny, charismatic guys, and uh, I thought he was great opposite Russo. 
in their little bits. And this is, and then I, I guess we should just, I and mean, we've talked about John McTiernan a little bit, but we should just kind of mention that, uh, you know, I mean, we've talked about him on the show before with Die Hard and Die Hard 3. Um, and then this is, I think, the film that he did. Uh, was this right before he had some issues with the FBI? I'm trying to remember the placement of that. That's funny. Since we talked about that last, that didn't even occur to me as I was uh, reading up on this <laughs> on this movie. He went to jail recently. It was like 2013, 14. Um, but the all the issues they were happening in late 2000. Uh, yeah, he pleaded guilty to perjury and lying to an FBI investigator in regard to his hiring of the private investigator Anthony Pelicano in late 2000 to illegally wiretap the phone calls of two people. Uh, one of whom was Charles Roven, a co-producer of his dystopian science fiction action film remake, Rollerball. Ah, uh, Rollerball. And that was that was the film he made after this in 2002. I just I, I want to go back to the cast just for one. Can I yeah. do that? Yeah. James Saito uh, as Paul Chang, uh, the butler, okay. the yeah. butler in the black T-shirt. Is, is he one of those faces for you? Like you see him and you're like, huh, I know that guy. He's a face I recognize, but I wouldn't have been able to tell you from where. Well, he's, he's not been, he's not as recognizable as other faces. He's got 107 credits uh, uh, to his name. Most recently, uh, I saw him most recently in uh, Iron Fist, uh, the sadly canceled Marvel series. Yeah. Uh, and so that was fantastic, but he is, I mean, he's been around a long time. He's done a lot of TV stuff, a lot of TV, um, um, movies, uh, big eyes. He was in big eyes. Uh, he's just, for me, he's one of those faces. And I saw him, I was like, oh my gosh, he's, it feels like he's been in everything. And then looked at his credits and in fact, he was in everything. Uh, so most of the characters that he played from, you know, uh, 2006 back all, you know, were all just straight up, um, Asian character placement, you know, uh, if it yeah. ends in Tokugawa or Yuni or Lu or Wong or Asian mob boss, it was him. Uh, <laughs> but he's, he has done some fantastic work. And so it was really funny seeing him here as kind of just a, um, you know, the straight up american uh um you know chinese american but really american butler uh and uh, i thought it was uh it's a good character he was the original shredder in the first it, Teenage Ninja Turtles. that's right that's right and that's i'm surprised right. you didn't say this pete but he was buckaroo bonsai's father in the deleted <laughs> scenes of that film you know that's where i should have started you're right <laughs> you're right you're right i know all right. So I have one little interesting nugget of knowledge uh, before we move on. The uh, when they go to Martinique and they're driving around in that uh, Shelby Mustang, it's a dark green Shelby Mustang that he's driving with her. That car was fitted out for Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in uh, McTiernan's 1993 film, Last Action Hero. They never ended up using it for that film. And uh, McTiernan uh, kept it and he had had it sitting in his garage. Uh from 93 until they filmed this, they flew it to Martinique because he thought this would be a, a the fun type of car for, for a, a crown to have. And they changed it up a little bit to make it uh, work. But another interesting thing is it is a dark green Shelby Mustang. That is the base of that car. And that was the car that McQueen drove in bullet. Ah, uh, it's such a fun car. Yeah. Uh, but they, so. they did, they, they muscled it up. 
Yeah, they know, do a lot of things to it. A lot and it's of hard stuff to, to tell it. what it is. It's practically a transformer. It pretty much is, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh now we've we have now talked about its precursor, but uh do we need to talk about a potential sequel? They have talked about a sequel. Um it's been in development hell. Uh January 2007, they talked about a sequel that was going to be a loose remake of the uh 1964 film Top Copy. And then Pierce Brosnan said that uh, Paul Verhoeven was attached to direct and then Verhoeven left and the script was changed and uh, all sorts of issues. And then uh, that was kind of it. Nothing's happened until um, April 2014. John McTiernan said that while in prison, which we just talked about, he had actually written a script for the sequel called Thomas Crown and the Missing Lioness. So I guess we'll see if something ever comes of it. I, it sounds like it's something that Brosnan is interested in, and clearly McTiernan is. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see if they decide to uh, continue this story. Do you want this story as an audience member and a fan, whatever to whatever degree? Uh, do you want Thomas Crown to become a franchise? I, I like the characters enough. I think that they could do something, but I don't feel like it needs a sequel. I always say that, and then. You know, I, I know certain percentage of sequels surprise me. I'm like, oh, who would have thought they could have come up with something that would have worked? And then some of them you watch and go, they should have left it alone. Yeah. Um, I don't know where I stand on this right now. I feel like I mean, I haven't felt like watching this since 99 when I saw it in the theaters. And I feel fine um, not going out and watching another one of them right away. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, how about award season? Did it uh, merit any attention at all? This is one of those uh, those genre films that has just not won people really push into the awards. Um, that being said, it did get some nominations. It got three wins, two other nominations at the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. <laughs> Pierce Brosnan <laughs> won best uh, or uh, favorite actor in a drama romance. Dennis Leary won favorite supporting actor in a drama romance. And Renee Russo, unfortunately, was just nominated as favorite actress in a drama romance. She lost to Nicole Kidman for Eyes Wide Shut. Also over at the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild Awards, uh, Enzo Angileri won for Best Contemporary Hairstyling in a feature film. So, uh, you know, it's uh, huh. it's those sorts of awards. I'll tell you, she should have won for those boots. You know the boots? <laughs> Yo, I know those the boots. Those are some great boots. Those were pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Yes. How about uh, the box office? McTee's remake cost a cool $48 million to make. Just about half the price of the painting he stole, actually. <laughs> That's, <laughs> or it's about $69 million in today's dollars. The movie opened on August 6th, 1999, opposite uh, M. Night Shyamalan's mega-hit The Sixth Sense and the Ben Stiller superhero comedy Mystery Men. With Brad Bird's The Iron Giant and the political satire Dick opening earlier in the week, it was quite a busy weekend. The Sixth Sense opened at number one, and The Blair Witch Project was still burning up the box office, coming in in the number two slot. Julie Roberts' The Runaway Bride was bumped down to the number three, and this topped out in the number four slot. Never got better than that, as it was a busy summer schedule, but it still managed to have a financially successful run. Thomas Crown Affair made $69.3 million domestically and $55 million internationally, coming in with a grand total of $179 million in today's dollars. That lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 972000 higher than the original. That being said, if you look at the profit-to-cost ratio, the original still performed better. 
It was a fine. Uh, it was a fine experience watching the movie. But now that we've talked about it, I'm I, I kind of want to re-rank it. It's left a bit of a sour <laughs> taste in my mouth. Uh, but I do think it is time for us to uh, step into the ring. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this film and how they have stacked up over the years. Uh, if you uh, click on this movie in the show notes, it'll take you straight to the Thomas Crown Affair 99 in Flickchart so you can add it to your own list and uh, see how it stands up to ours. All right. First up, we have the Thomas Crown Affair or Numi, the girl with the dragon tattoo. That's Numi. Dragon tattoo. Yep. The Thomas Crown Affair. Or Christmas in July. Christmas in July for me. Yep, Christmas in July for me. The Thomas Crown Affair or Near Dark. I'm going to take Thomas Crown. Yeah, I'll take Thomas Crown. The Thomas Crown Affair or The Girl Who Played With Fire. Girl Who Played With Fire. Yep, same. The Thomas Crown Affair or My Dinner With Andre. Thomas Crown Affair. I'm going to say My Dinner With Andre. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel fine. Film. I would watch Thomas Crown first, but if I'm picking based on what I think is the better film, I'm going to say my dinner with Andre. All right, let's do it. Okay, <laughs> one, one, two, two three, three. Paper. scissors. Ugh. Andy, they should make Andy, 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 the Andre Crown affair. <laughs> Somebody needs to get to work on that. <laughs> instead, of, instead of a sexy board game scene, they'll have a sexy dinner <laughs> conversation scene with Wallace Shawn and Rene Russo. Shawn, no, no, it's Wallace Shawn and Pierce Brosnan. Are you kidding? <laughs> That's right. Renee's not even there. It's just them talking. In fact, it's, it's only after the first hour and forty minutes that they make their they move their first pawn. <laughs> oh, it's a, this is going to burn up the box office. Oh, burn the, Thomas it up. Crown, the, the Thomas Crown Affair or the Young Girls of Rochefort? Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah, here I'll say Thomas Crown. Well, that does it. That lands the Thomas Crown Affair at spot 327 on our chart. 327 out of 380. That's pretty low, Andy. It is pretty low. How did it do on your personal list? I had to re-rank this um, because I wasn't happy with where it was. A little too high. Um, and it, I, I ended up landing right smack dab in the middle. It is at uh, 2,030 out of 4,060. And I'm still not sure it's in the right spot, but at least I feel like it was better than it was. Yeah, I... I struggled. Uh, I struggled ranking this one uh, first because I think Flickchart was having some uh, having some issues. Yeah. Um, but the the first time I ranked it, it came in right around three twenty nine, which is which, which felt really high to me. But now it has come out, and I, I feel more comfortable here with it uh, at four eighty seven out of one thousand fifty. So uh, roughly right in the middle uh, again. And if I were to go by the algorithm. This should be a two and a half star straight up um, elsewhere. Uh, if you remember, I, I think we were both at three and a half stars for the original Thomas Crown Affair. Um, that is correct. How are you feeling about this one versus that one in the in the star rating at letterbox.com slash the next reel? I've been really torn with this one because, yes, I would be right at the two and a half mark also. And I was torn if I would give this two and a half or three 
And I feel like I was at a three, but after a conversation, I feel like it's a two and a half. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That robbery is a, <laughs> man, uh, that was suddenly uh, tough. And I feel like looking at it with any degree of, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's hard to, to, to not see all those little pieces that kind of make it fall apart. I was with you. In fact, I think when I started, I was at the three and a half stars and I think now I'm at two and a half stars, but you know what? I will give it a heart. Uh, yes. Because, As will I. yeah, I think, you know, I have a fondness for the character and certainly for the experience. And it, well, and there are fun elements and there are fun, fun scenes yeah. like there's stuff in here that does work. Yeah. Um, I, I just was surprised by the number of things that I found um, tiresome this time. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, yeah. We are still doing our movies in the remake series. Uh, where do we go from here? This will be an interesting one. We are going to uh, be back in 1968 celebrating the 50th anniversary of Mel Brooks's film, The Producers. My memory of the the original is uh, sparse. Really? Yeah. I've, I've watched the uh, remake far more than the original, which seems ridiculous, uh, but uh, that's just the way it is. So I cannot wait to get back into uh, the, the Mel Brooks original. I'm very curious um, to to watch this. I've never seen any of the iterations of the remake. You've only seen the original. I've only seen the original. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Well, so this I'm, I'm curious. A real, a real treat. It, 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 I hope so because it's never been one of my favorite Mel Brooks films. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm so glad it ended up on our list. Well, yeah, this is what happens when the Patreon uh, supporters get to vote. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, the Saturday matinee. And this week's going to be great because, again, the patrons have got, are behind the wheel and apparently we're going to be talking about cinematic long kisses in film. So go kisses we also talk about movie news and new trailers uh and uh, you know we go head to head in this uh, weekly challenge when we put together these lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week there are all sorts of other goodies too if you support us at different levels just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel you can learn more about us and check out the detailed show notes at the you can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Next Reel. And if you want to get into the conversation yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show links or on the website. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott, who runs all things Twitter. And thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. And because we were right in the middle, we split the difference, right? I think uh, I went low and you bravely I went, uh, high. went high. I did. Why don't you kick us off? I've got a five star by C. Janney who says, don't bother with popcorn. 
It's going to end up on the floor like everything on the desk. You'll get it. If you don't know, what's the point of telling you? Just watch it. You can blow dry your cat later. Oh, and this is a date movie, so lock the cat out of the room. They're just going to stare at you while you're enjoying the movie. Wow. This poor, poor cat. This cat is going through a lot. Wow. I can't. I just can't believe the cat has so much trouble uh your review is actually i think interesting i mean if you quote get it right uh it it lines right up with my review if i may okay interesting uh i i get a uh, one star from 67 coog who said who says of the movie it turns out to be pornographic mm. and that's the end that's the whole thing <laughs> so there you go People have uh, they not didn't really. Get I think it. they. It, they <laughs> and clearly, they didn't blow the blow dry their cat. They didn't have to blow dry their cat. No, <laughs> there there was one review uh, where this is a a poor poor woman who watched it with her hubby, who kept urging her to watch it. Uh, he he kept urging me to give it one more try. She said. <laughs> She said apparently uh, he had originally seen it and loved it, but uh, but says that he saw a, uh, a, a, a rated version of the movie at the theater long before we met, he says, as it seems, and that when they tried to watch it together, it was super raunchy and it left a bad taste in her mouth and she doesn't want to watch the movie again. Sure, fine, say it, she says, prude. But I'm just not a fan of watching that kind of thing. But my hubby kept telling me to give it one more try. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm starting to see, Andy, if you see where we're going here, I'm I'm not I'm no longer reading a narrative of her review of the movie. I'm reading uh, deeply into their relationship. Uh, and yeah, they have some story. They have some stuff that they're working out. And I think this one is oof. They they need to watch more of these kinds of movies together, I think. Doctor's or you know orders. what they really need? You know what they need? What? They need to get to a therapy session with Faye Dunaway. With Faye Dunaway. Yeah. She's going to shame them. Shame <laughs> them right into the sack. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>